Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is the inerrant and inspired and authoritative Word of God. Now last week, or I'm sorry, this week, as we look at this passage this morning, it is important for us, as you see right from the get-go, to remember what we talked about last week. This week is building very much so off of the main theme of what Jesus talked about in verses 1 through uh, 13 of chapter 16. I'm not going to go into a detailed review of the sermon from last week, but the main point Jesus was making to his disciples in that passage is that what a Christian does with his or her financial wealth and material possessions, what we do with these things matters. We are called as followers of Christ to be faithful stewards of everything we've been given, whether it's money, land, buildings, whatever it is, and we are to use all that we have for the edification of the saints, for the building up of the church, for the spread of the gospel, for the glory of God. All that we are and all that we have is to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And last week's passage ended with those strong words from Jesus, you cannot serve God and money. Now, it's important to understand you can serve God with your money, but you cannot serve God and money. Your heart, my heart, the human heart, only has the capacity to serve one supreme master. And so now today, coming off the heels of last week's message, it seems that Luke is putting before us the prime example of people who thought they could serve God and money, the Pharisees. Luke tells us, verse 14, the Pharisees were lovers of money. And look at what happens in the lives and the hearts of the Pharisees, men who were called to be shepherds of God's people. Look at what happens to them because they love money. They, just like Jesus said, did not and could not serve God. In fact, their love of money actually led them to hate God. Their love of money led them to ridicule God, to, to blaspheme God. Luke says the Pharisees, they heard Christ's teachings concerning material wealth, concerning material possessions, and they ridiculed Jesus Christ, God incarnate. Their love of money led to blasphemy. And one thing, you know, one thing many people wonder as we read the New Testament, and this question has been asked 
in our own family worship of my children at times, you know, the question is, why couldn't the Pharisees see who Jesus truly was? If they knew the Old Testament so well, if they saw the miracles of Jesus, if they heard his teachings, why could they not recognize that he was the Christ? Why could they not recognize he is the Messiah? And that's a good question. And I think today our text tells us at least one answer as to why they weren't getting it concerning who Jesus was. Now, I do want to put in a word of caution here just briefly, beloved. When we ask questions like, why didn't the Pharisees get it? I hope we recognize that apart from God's gracious work of regeneration, you and I would not get it either. We're no better off than the Pharisees. If you see and know and trust in who Jesus is and what he's done, then remember, the only reason is because God in eternity past chose to make you an object of his grace. And through the... And through the work of the Holy Spirit, he has raised you from spiritual death to spiritual life so that you can see the truth of Christ. It was not your intelligence or your intuition or your ability to see what others miss. If you see and believe, give praise to God. Your question really should not be, why couldn't the Pharisees see it? The question really is, why, Father, can I see it? Why have you made your wondrous grace known to me? That should be the real question. But at the same time, it is a fair question to ask, why were the Pharisees missing who Jesus was? And it seems like Jesus says, or Luke says here, that a big reason why the Pharisees couldn't see it is because they were lovers of money, not God. Their lust for cash blinded them to the truth of Jesus Christ, beloved, just as all sin blinds us to the truth of Jesus Christ. And so the Pharisees did what all unrepentant sinners do. They ridiculed God. They scorned. They looked upon contempt. Uh, they looked with contempt, rather, upon Jesus Christ. So, verse 15, Jesus responds to the ridicule of the Pharisees with a very strong rebuke. He begins, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination to the sight, in the sight of the Lord. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, You go before men, and you do all these outward works of righteousness, whether it's praying loud in the public square or making a big deal out of the tithes that you bring to the temple. You build up your own riches so as to gain status in the eyes of men. And beloved, understand that was a big thing back then because much like today, many people believed in the day of Christ that if you were a wealthy person, if you had great material wealth, that was a sign that God was pleased with you. It's a terrible, heretical lie, by the way. Jesus is saying, you may be able to fool men. You may, you may be able to present yourself as the one who is holy and upright. But God sees your heart. He knows who you truly are. And all those things that you prop up before the eyes of men to give the appearance of holiness, all those things, God finds 
abominable. External works, beloved, external acts of righteousness, even if they are on some level obedient to the Word of God, they can carry no merit with God. No work of the law will ever bring God to the point where He looks at you and says, here's a righteous person. The Pharisees, like so many people today, were missing the heart of how one is justified before God. It was all external for them. But their external works of so-called righteousness were flowing from corrupt hearts. All their external works were flowing from hearts that loved money, not God. And I love what Pastor Philip Ryken says about this. He says that here with the Pharisees, here we see love of money is more than just a small moral failing. It is actually, actually an appalling betrayal of our love of God that sets us squarely against the gospel of salvation and the kingdom of God. The Pharisees ultimately had no clue how to be right with the holy God how to be truly justified in his sight. They were missing the gospel of the kingdom. And this is what Jesus is speaking about. The gospel of the kingdom is what Jesus goes on to speak about in verse 16. He says, The law and the prophets were until John. That is, until John the Baptist. Since then, since the time of the life and earthly ministry of John the Baptist, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces their way into it. This is a remarkable statement that Jesus makes. It's a statement which is clear, although it might be confusing to us, it is clear, both in its gospel proclamation and also very clear in how it ties the Old and the New Testaments together. I want you to understand what Jesus is saying here in this verse. Understand it, remember it, commit it to your hearts, And let it guide and shape your understanding of the very nature of the Bible itself. What Jesus says here is essential to understanding the Word of God. Because Jesus is saying, in in a sort of roundabout way, though still direct, He is saying that the entire Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, was a great proclamation of God's grace. The Law and the Prophets were until John the Baptist. They were proclaiming the future gospel of the kingdom, the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom. All the way from the writings of Moses, starting with the book of Genesis, the whole way up to and including the last prophet of the Old Testament era, John the Baptist himself, the gospel of the kingdom of God was being proclaimed but it was anticipatory. It was looking forward to the coming of the kingdom. But that gospel of the kingdom, with the coming of Christ in the New Testament age, it became realized. It became fulfilled. So that when Jesus comes, it's not repent for the kingdom of God is coming. It is repent for the kingdom of God is here. John the Baptist, this great transitionary figure in the history of redemption, he is the one who pointed to Jesus and proclaimed, Behold, 
It's here, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is Him. John said, here He is. Here is the anointed of God that we've been waiting for. Here is the one who is the fulfillment of everything that the law and the prophets spoke about. And since that day, beloved, what has been preached? What has been preached? What has been proclaimed by Jesus by the apostles, by the Christian church throughout the ages, is this. Come to the Messiah. Repent of your sins. Receive Him by faith. And you will enter in right now into God's eternal kingdom. And beloved, the Pharisees were missing that this was the only way to be righteous before God. These experts in the law and in the prophets did not understand that the whole of Scripture declares this great gospel truth. The Old Testament declared it again in anticipation of the coming Messiah and of the coming of the kingdom of God. The New Testament declares it in light of the coming of the Messiah and His finished work of redemption and His death and resurrection. And as long as this world exists, beloved, as it is, there will always be this one gospel. Repent, come into the kingdom through faith in the Messiah. And now that the Messiah has come and He has brought the kingdom with Him, Jesus makes this interesting statement then. He says people are forcing their way into it. Now that is a strange statement. But I think it's simply referencing something that we already looked at before in our study in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 13. Christ's teaching on the narrow door. Remember that? In that teaching, Jesus said, strive to enter the narrow door. The force that Jesus speaks of here in our passage this morning, I believe, is another way of speaking of this striving to enter in through the narrow door. And what do we say it means to strive? In the Greek, the word strive conjures up images of a sports arena. In one sense, a, a Greco-Roman wrestling ring. And this is not referring to our own efforts to try to earn salvation, force our way into the kingdom in that way. Instead, it is the imagery of a mental state, an attitude. Jesus is saying that you strive by agonizing, by struggling. Struggling against what? Well, against sin. Against what the Apostle Paul calls the old man or the flesh. Your old sinful nature. We saw Luke 13 that ultimately... Speaking of striving to enter through the narrow door was another way of stating the doctrine of repentance. Repentance, again, is not merely the act of saying to God, oh, sorry I sinned. That's not repentance. Repentance is the act of actively striving to turn away from your sin. Actively striving after new obedience that can only be achieved through the working of the Holy Spirit in you as He grows you in holiness, as He sanctifies you. And that is what Jesus is speaking of here in this passage today when He talks about entering the kingdom through force. 
everyone who enters into the kingdom of God has a mindset that hates sin, that seeks to fight against it daily. And everyone who enters into the kingdom of God has to constantly, have to constantly turn from sin the mercy of God that's found in Christ. And that doesn't mean the one who repents and turns to Jesus in faith is only saved so long as they aren't sinning. That's not true. Beloved, if that was true, no one would be saved. There's no possible way, although we should strive, there's no possible way for you to confess every single one of your individual sins and live a holy life even for one minute. Sin is not merely an outward action. It is your words. It is your thoughts. It is your deeds. It is anything in you which is, works contrary to the will of God, to the love of God, and to the love of your neighbor. It is so pervasive in us. So I don't want you to understand that you're only saved uh, when you repent until the next time you sin, and then you have to repent again. No, but the point is repentance is an ongoing act for the Christian because as the Spirit of God indwells us and grows us in holiness and sanctifies us, what happens? We begin to see more and more just how far short of the glory of God we fall and it breaks our hearts and we want to turn away from our sin because we begin to see our sin the same way that God sees it. And it becomes an abomination to us. And we want to be free from it. And so we are constantly turning back to God, saying, Lord, be merciful to me. Give me the strength daily to fight against this sin. I don't want to do it anymore. Thomas Watson, the, the old Puritan, said, repentance is like writing a certificate of divorce to your sin. You don't want anything to do with it. And that's the striving. That's the force that Jesus is talking about here. Now the Pharisees were missing all of it. They did all of these external, outward works of righteousness, but God could see their heart. And their hearts were hard. Their hearts were idolatrous. Their hearts were making their mammon, their money, their material wealth, their God, not Jesus. They were arrogant. They believed that because of their outward works of righteousness, they had no need to repent. And they had no need to strive against sin. And certainly they had no need for a Savior. They were trying to force their way into the kingdom through works, outward works of righteousness, not through striving, not through repenting and coming to Christ. So that's verse 16. And then verse 17. I want you to remember something. Beloved, as we look at verse 17, I want you to remember something about the Pharisees at this point in Christ's ministry. Already at this point in the life of Christ, and Luke has made mention to it several times already, the Pharisees were watching and they were waiting for Jesus to say something that they could use to bring him up on charges of blasphemy before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish courts, so that they could have him executed. And so what Jesus says in verse 16 that the law and the prophets were until John. When the Pharisees heard that, I have no doubt, because they had no interest in anything else Jesus was saying, I have no doubt the Pharisees thought 
that they had finally had Jesus trapped. Because what could they do? They could take that statement and twist it. Use it against Jesus and accuse him of a, of a heresy called antinomianism. We talked about antinomianism before. It is a false teaching. It is a heresy that believes that the law of God, especially what we call the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is now null and void. It has no use in the life of God's people anymore. And when they heard Jesus say that the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist, that would be a very easy statement. In fact, many people claiming to be Christians today take this statement and use it to state that the law is now void for the life of God's people. And so the Pharisees thought they could accuse Jesus of antinomianism. Again, this word literally meaning anti-law. And because the Pharisees were missing the entire point of what Jesus was saying here in verse 16, they thought they really had him good on this one. Before the Pharisees could even conjure up the scheme of entrapping Jesus through this phrase in their own minds, I think Jesus here is one step ahead of them, and he makes a statement in verse 17 that it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. It's as if he's saying, oh, you know what? Before you can go on and accuse me of blasphemy, of antinomianism, of being against the law, understand what I truly believe about the law. And in verse 17, he makes this statement then, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, that's a remarkable statement because if you know anything about biblical Hebrew, the language that the Old Testament was written in, you, you might know that originally, biblical Hebrew did not have any vowels. It was only written down using consonants. But as the language developed throughout time, Jewish scribes started to indicate vowel sounds, not by developing more letters, which would, you know, would have been very helpful. You know, they should have just developed a Hebrew version of an E or an O or something. Instead, what did they do? They started making little dots little dashes next to or inside or above or under the Hebrew uh, letters. They're called diacritics. And these diacritics are nothing, like I said, nothing more than little dots or dashes. And it's very easy when you're reading Hebrew to miss them. And some of them are just like maybe one dot next to another dot under a coma, or a, not a coma, a comma. It is enough to put you in a coma if you're trying to read Hebrew. <laughs> but they are incredibly small easy to miss. Uh, and Jesus, notice what he's saying. As it concerns the word of the Lord, as it concerns the law of God, not even one of these little tiny dots, not even one of these little tiny diacritics will become void. The word of the Lord is eternal. So to the Pharisees, Jesus says, don't even try to accuse me of being against the law, of being an antinomian. I have a very high view of the law, Jesus says. In fact, it is higher than your view. Jesus is basically saying, I believe the law is eternal. You don't. You don't. And this then is what he is saying in verse 18. Verse 18 is Christ's proof 
that the Pharisees, these scholars of the law who claim to uphold the law and live out the law perfectly in their life, he is proving that it is they who were the antinomians who had a low view of the law. Now verse 18 is very easy to read that and disconnect it from the rest of the passage. It seems like a random verse on divorce. In fact, our English Bibles, many of them, separate out verse 18 from the rest of the section. And so many of us just think, why is this here? He goes from talking about the law and the prophets never passing, or the law never passing away. Now he just says some random statement about divorce. What is this about? It's very much so connected to the rest of the passage. And that fact becomes easy to see if you understand what the Pharisees believed and practiced concerning divorce in the days of Christ. Jesus, in verse 18, restates what the law declares about divorce in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verse 1. If anyone gets divorced for any reason other than marital unfaithfulness and then remarries, he or she, in the eyes of God, is an adulterer. That's what Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 basically says. Now, we also know that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, gets to the spirit of that law by also stating that in the case of spousal abandonment, which I think has broad application, in the case of abandonment, divorce is also allowed in the sight of God. But Christ's point is this. In those days, the Pharisees completely perverted the law concerning divorce. God's law said adultery is the only grounds for divorce. The Pharisees were teaching things like if your wife burns your supper, you can divorce her. If you as a husband don't find your wife physically attractive anymore, you can get a certificate of divorce. That's what the Pharisees were teaching. So I want you to see the mastery of Jesus Christ here. He's essentially saying, don't even think of accusing me of antinomianism, you devilish Pharisees. I believe God's law will never become void. And in reality, it is you who are against the law. All you have to do to prove that is look at what you are saying about divorce. It is completely contrary to the law of God as given to us by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. It's his checkmate move, you see? That's how this verse connects to the prior section. He took the ground right, under, uh, right out from under the feet of the Pharisees. They had no ground to stand upon to claim that Jesus was against the law. Now, I understand some of you may have questions like, you know, Pastor, don't we believe that some parts of God's law have become void? The laws about Israel's worship, the sacrifices, the priesthood, laws about what we can and cannot wear, what we can and cannot eat. We don't follow those laws anymore. So how are we different? How is that not antinomianism? And that's a good question. To that, to that I would say this, beloved, we don't follow those laws anymore because Christ, Jesus Christ, completely fulfilled them. And in the New Testament... There are passages which make it abundantly clear that those laws concerning the civil and ceremonial life of Israel are no longer binding on the people of God. I would encourage you today to go when you get home and read Acts chapter 10, the account of Peter 
and Cornelius. It deals directly with the laws concerning what we can and cannot eat. Go read Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council. Or go and read Hebrews chapter 8. These are portions of the New Testament which deal directly with certain laws and why we today as the people of God uh, are not bound by them. But understand this. There is a marked difference between laws simply being made void and laws passing away because they are completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's a marked difference in those two things. And as it concerns the moral law, the Ten Commandments specifically, we need to understand that that law is completely binding on the entire human race, yesterday, today, and forever. The law, which was inscribed by the very finger of God himself on tablets of stone, that law, the moral law, will never pass away. And so I want you to understand the whole point of this. Understand what the Pharisees did not see in our passage today, beloved. The law does not and cannot bring salvation. The author of Hebrews says the law deals with external things, not with the heart. The law was never given, by the way, to bring salvation. Jews in the Old Testament weren't saved by their obedience to the law. They were saved, as we said before, in repentance and in faith in the promised coming Messiah. And you can never justify yourself through outward works of righteousness. You can have all the external works of righteousness in the world. You can do all the right things in your outward behavior. It doesn't mean a thing in the eyes of God. Because your heart isn't soft. If you aren't striving, if you aren't repentant, if you aren't surrendering yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and receiving Him by faith, no matter what so-called good works you do, you are lost. You are striving to enter the kingdom the same way the Pharisees were. They are striving to enter or force their way in through good works. And if that is you, my friends, that is the only evidence anyone needs to prove that it's not Jesus who is the object of your love and affection. But like the Pharisees, it's something else. If you're trying to force your way into the kingdom in any way other than repentance and faith, you are scoffing. You are blaspheming Jesus Christ. We all have to understand this, beloved. Our outward works apart from Christ are filthy rags in the eyes of the Holy God. And they are filthy rags because God knows our hearts. I... I was thinking about this phrase, God knows our hearts, and just the thinking of this age when, they hear, when people hear things like that. Many people will say, oh, he means well. God knows his heart. And they take comfort in that. Beloved, it should terrify us that God knows our hearts. The heart of man, as the prophet Jeremiah says, is deceitful. Above all things, Jesus himself says in the Gospel of Mark, of Mark that out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. He says all these things come from within, from your heart, and they defile a person. 
God knowing our hearts is a terrible thing. And so the only hope for entering into the kingdom is not your good works, not your good heart. The only hope for our salvation is to offer before God what King David speaks of in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart, a repentant heart, a heart that knows it is desperately wicked, a heart that knows that it can never produce outward works of Righteousness, a heart that clings to Christ and His cleansing blood by faith. And if the Lord gives you that kind of heart, or has already given you that kind of heart, beloved, if you come to Christ in repentance and faith and enter into the kingdom through striving through the narrow door, by forcing your way in through the narrow door, then you will then understand what the Pharisees miss completely. You will understand the role of the law in the kingdom of God. You will understand the law as it should be understood for God's people. Not as something that is void, but as a faithful guide which teaches us how to live to the glory of God. The law, beloved, when we turn to Christ in repentance and faith, when we enter into the kingdom and come to the Messiah, the King of the kingdom, the law will become, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, our delight. And our outward works of righteousness, our obedience to the law, will flow out of grateful hearts. This is the role that the law plays in the kingdom of God, not to bring salvation, but to teach us how to live to God's glory. Our outward works when we understand the salvation that Christ brings and how to enter into the kingdom. Our outward works will flow out of a heart which has been made new by the Holy Spirit. A heart which desires to keep God's good law. Not so that we can enter into the kingdom, but instead our good works will flow out of a heart that already knows that through Jesus we've been already brought into His kingdom. That's the role of the law in the kingdom of God. It's not null and void. We need it as God's people if we desire to live to the glory and for the enjoyment of God. We need the law in the kingdom of God, beloved.